1: Hello and welcome to Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston and I'll be keeping you company here on News Talk for the next hour. Coming up on today's show, as Irish universities make major gains on the QS World Rankings, we're going to look at their relevance as Irish students are making their choices this summer. And as our world of work continues to change and evolve post COVID, in recent months, many of the tech giants, Apple, Google and Meta have all started to demand their staff show up at their office for at least three days a week. So we're going to look at the word of work and what that means and what the research is showing about productivity. And finally, with three by-elections taking place in the UK next week, we'll talk to the Financial Times political editor about what we can expect and how they will affect Rishi Sunak's leadership as the Tory party head for a potential thrashing. You can email me at com. I'm also open on Twitter at StockNT. Now, a gradual reverse migration is underway from Zoom right back into the conference room. Wall Street firms this week were among the most forceful in summoning their workers back to the offices. But in recent months, we've also seen those big tech giants like Apple, Google, Meta and Twitter, and those happy clappy workplaces all demanding that their staff come back to the office at least three days a week. Well, in the summer of 2021, my next guest found himself publishing the first edition of his book called Where Is My Office? office two years on from that. Chris Kane has just published the post-pandemic edition of that book and I'm delo- delighted to say that he's joining me now. Chris, you're welcome to Taking Stock. Hi Mandy, how are you? Not too bad at all. Um, Chris, is it fair to say that we've got kind of three uh, periods in work where it was the post-pandemic, the pre-pandemic where we were used to going to offices, working 24-7, used to going physically into an office space. Then we had the COVID period, which was a complete reversal of that. And now we're in the post-COVID period where we're trying to find some kind of blend that takes the best from both of those. Is that fair to say?
3: That's absolutely spot on. And I'm delighted that you have. You're one of the few journalists I've spoken to, and I've spoken to 20 or 30 in the last couple of weeks, who've actually focused on the word blend. Because it's going to be a mix. And I think what happened as a consequence of COVID, you know, it was dreadful for everybody, whether you're in Britain or Ireland or anywhere, there's lots of suffering. But it also brought about a huge opportunity, the like of which we've never had before, for people to stand back and reflect about how they want to live their lives, how they want to work, how they want to interact with their fellow human beings and there's been a huge mindset shift and we were all used to sort of a one size fits all model and all this debate about working from home or back to the office it's actually the wrong argument there's a much bigger debate out there
1: mm. Now, we were often talking to um, people on this programme and lots of other ones on News Talk about the workspace and with management gurus and HR experts, but you're kind of coming at this from a different angle. Your perspective is slightly different. Just explain to us where you're coming from and a little bit about your own history in terms oh. of the work environment. Oh, that, well, I am originally from Kildare. I found myself, uh, like many
3: people in the 80s, taking the boat and i ended up in a big surveying practice and learned a lot about traditional real estate and then in the mid 90s i had the opportunity to go and have a real mickey mouse job and spend many years working for disney and and now with the frying pan into the fire i ended up at the bbc which is an interesting place at the best of times but um that let me really work with real estate to help people produce great programs, particularly around the Beeb. And that said to me, it's not about the buildings, it's about what people do in the buildings. Mm. And I've been a great exponent of people and place rather than the other way around. And if you look at the thousands of people who used to commute daily into Dublin up the Nace Road or in the Navan Road or on the Dart or whatever, you know, that was the only way we knew how to work because that's how our parents had done it and probably our grandparents. And, COVID came along and suddenly we all had to work from home and we all had to learn. And, you know, Zoom and Teams have been around for 20 years, but now it was embraced at scale. Even our grandparents are are Zoom experts now. So I think COVID removed the last obstacle uh, in our move to truly digital living. Mm -hmm. That has huge implications for how we work, Mm -hmm. but also has huge implications for real estate, for cities, for the economy generally.
1: Yeah, and and look, we want to look for sure today at how effective that remote blend is and and what what research is telling us now about productivity and what's good and what's bad. But while we're on the issue of BBC, I want to ask you a little bit about that, if I can, because, you know, we're having this debate here at the moment about RTE, so they might be looking at a relocation in time to come. But when I was reading (laughs) about this BBC relocation, it struck me that um, actually the location of... Work is also sometimes really important to a brand and a sense of place. Was it easy, for example, taking people out from those historic buildings of the BBC? That was a huge part of the brand identity. How does a company go about trying to, you know, provide incentives to move away from that? Or can the company itself extract itself from a sense of place, never mind the individual workers? Oh,
3: uh, once again, a great question. You know, it's all about land and brand. And you take Television Centre in West London, which was the centrepiece of the BBC News at 6 and 10 for 20, 30 years. And people were willing to put up the barricades not to move. But what we had to do was to create something really exciting in Manchester for those that were moving there and you know a lot of people actually were moving back into the centre of London into Broadcasting House and uh, the BBC were criticised for spending a lot of money on Broadcasting House but it'll be there for a hundred years so the value proposition is very different and moving north to Manchester was essential because the BBC needed to be much more representative of all its audiences and you know if you take an Irish context the you know Dublin being such a Magnet for all economic activity. Maybe uh, post-COVID thinking might lead to a more balanced approach to sharing the economic at- activity right across
1: the entire island. So, wouldn't that be something? A more regionalized, decentralised yeah. RTE. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, you, or any organization for that matter, if you look along the West Coast and you see all the digital hubs that have sprung up, you see lots of people actually saying, I want to work in a different model. And, you know, the the thing about, say, for example, the Economist article was all about people going back to the office, but the key phrase in that was at least three days a week. Mm. And that begs the question then, um, is our industrial age Monday to Friday nine to five working model, is that that in the last chapter you have to ask yourself? Mm. You know, and and office work, you know, to be fair, only a proportion of the total workforce – Works in offices. You know, you have to be in the studio by and large. Uh, You know, the BBC today 20% of all the workforce who are production people have to be in the studio. The other 80% are hybrid. So there's an awful lot of variety emerging. And that's why it was uh, very insightful of you to make this reference to the word blended, because that's the model of
1: the future Initially we were all very enthused about the productivity levels that we could achieve at home but now looking back at the research and, I, and I'm particularly talking about that research that came out from Harvard which we we both looked at this week which kind of referenced that people were far more productive when they were at home possibly because they were commuting possibly because they were working longer hours possibly because it was a novelty factor but there's new research out Chris that shows that actually It's not as productive, perhaps, as we may have thought.
3: Yes, and therein lies the issue in terms of There's an awful lot of research uh, going on at the moment, and much of it is very solid in the Harvard stuff, but delving into it a little more detail, you will find that much of the subject matter of their research were actually data entry and call centre workers, which is, I would argue, in my opinion, and it's only my opinion, is not representative of the wider office workforce, which do a whole raft of activities, paper processing, creative activities, report writing, etc. And, you know, we're fixated with productivity, which is a 20th century model. It's all very well measuring productivity, where you make stuff in a factory. But I would argue, once again, you can't really uh measure productivity for office work mm. um and you know from in many cases if you really look at it most organizations measured how people work by simply did they show up for work in the morning and when they're there at nine and they leave at nine at five and it's been my experience and i've had the good fortune of managing and working with great teams but you know a couple of thousand people and you you walk around the office floors and you see some people are working and some are not and but how do you measure this stuff and i think uh it's quite a difficult thing to do and that's why you see some smart organizations now moving more to an outcomes focus rather than an outputs basis because Mm. you know traditionally offices were modeled on factories and were production lines and you're probably not old enough but i am to remember rows and rows of desks and paper being passed from desk a to b to c to d and that day is now long over but we only realized that when covid came along
1: no, I'm not even old enough to remember paper. Actually, I remember being at the Web Summit once and taking out a notebook and I think I heard an audible gasp because there was oh, nobody else without a paper. Yeah. Anyway, just, I know that the, the research and the data from the research might be, in your view, you know, not representative of ordinary office workers, but there was a couple of interesting things that it did throw up. And one of them was when they weren't even looking at office work, but they were looking at even online chess professionals and saying that yeah. they play less well. Face to face to face on a computer, suggesting that maybe there is an inhibition to creative thinking online, and it's just not Absolutely. something you can replace by um, not seeing those small nuances and interacting with people and evaluating their body language. So we have to get that into you know working, and and that's where the blend comes in because maybe the managers can't have a situation where they have people working like that without without creativity and collaboration for five days a week.
3: Once again, you're spot on. We're, We're social creatures. We understand, you know, if you think about it in an Irish context, there's always going to be a bit of How's the crack? And, you know, a little bit of chatting beef and socialising. Uh, it's probably a bit more reserved in Britain, but it it's still there. And people need that. They need to sense what the mood of the room is. And, you know, to be creative and stuff, you need to be together. And that's where people have now recognised that... You know that phrase in Ireland, there's a time and a place for everything. Mm. And that's where I think many of the smarter organizations who are now really thinking about how they want to engage with their workforce, how they want to be recognized as employers of choice are saying, well, let's reconstitute the office as a place where you come in to work Together, And that means managers are going to have to work very differently. They're going to have to plan their time and to encourage their workers to make it worth their while to come to the office, to commute, etc., etc. Mm. Because one of the big questions that came out of COVID was many people asking themselves, Why would I say commute into Grand Canal docks or wherever uh, just to sit at a desk and send emails? And this whole questioning of the purpose of the office is something I discovered many years ago. That's what prompted me to write the first edition of the book and then spurred me on to do the the second one to talk about a manifesto for a change of the, the office work model, but also a corresponding change in how real estate is Uh, delivered and operated to meet these new emerging needs and you know in many cases for example have we hit peak office do we have too much of the space, uh, you know. Given uh, both Britain and Ireland's housing crisis, maybe it's time to focus on putting roofs over people's heads.
1: Mm. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock, and I'm talking to Chris, Tain- Chris Kane about uh, going back to the office to work. And he is the author of a book called "Where Is My Office." Uh, Chris, yeah, just picking up on that point about real estate because I guess this is where you started off. Really, before the pandemic, you were involved in this creation of space about. Uh, what you need as opposed to, you know, what you want to just, you know, produce. Um, So creating those workspaces. Um, But ultimately, if we're in a situation now where we're trying to create a blend and there are some people who just want or need to get their workers back into the office, what do those employers need to do? How do they create a space to get people and attract people back in?
3: Well, I think, firstly, it's it's not about the space in isolation. It's about how the space is operated. And then it's also about how the people who own, operate and lease the space work with managers of that particular organisation to figure out how the space can support the purpose of the business. And this is where the whole relationship between people and place has been redefined and uh, managers have already woken up to this in the smarter organisations and there's many people i would describe as ostriches who are, are are sort of really hoping that things are going to go back to normal and you know they're not The change has been dramatic, but it's been dramatic globally, even in far-flung places in Asia where culturally people are much more sort of subservient to custom and practice. You you go to India and people are rapidly embracing hybrid working, as in the rest of Southeast Asia. Even in China, 10-15% of the professional workforce there work in a hybrid manner. Who would have thought that? Mm. Uh, you know, you look at what's happening in the US, uh, you know, despite the demands of some of the companies you mentioned in your opening. Their the workforce are saying, wait a minute, uh, we're not quite sure we want to actually agree. And of course, then there's the row about whether you get promoted or whether you get paid. And some people are voting with their feet and saying, well, maybe I don't want to work for you. So there's some big societal shifts taking place, which... Um, I think you ignore at your peril.
1: Mm. Yeah, you asked the question a few moments ago from a worker's perspective, you know, why would I continue to go in to Grand Canal Dock when I can do my emails from home? Well, if a, an employer says the reason why you've come into Grand Canal Dock is because we pay you and that's where we want you, what defence does an employee or e have in that case?
3: I, I don't think, you know, in in, in a binary t- situation like that, then the worker says, Well, do I want to agree with that or do I want to look elsewhere? And, you know, the many journals have already started to talk about this idea of the quiet resignation where people, you know, maybe show up but they don't give of their of their all. Mm. And, you know, that's the real thing now in that it's it's no longer about managing by diktat. Um, the whole management philosophy of both large and small organizations, has been turned head over heels. You know, and these things were changing anyway because you have five generations in the workforce, you have different attitudes, but this whole, you know, the, the, the way we're moving into digital living, you know, and we haven't really talked about, there's probably not time this morning to talk about chat GPT and AI, which is really going to shake things around. And, you know, we're, we're, we're in a period of extreme experimentation because in reality, nobody knows anything about how this thing is going to play
1: out. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, there is a lot of changes going on around us and we will definitely come back to that issue of chat, GBT on another occasion. And if one good thing came out of COVID-19, it is that managing by diktat is gone. And we will return to all of that on another occasion. But for now, Chris Kane, thank you very much for joining us here on News Talk. Thank you, Mandy. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Join us after this short break as we delve into the world of university rankings with Ellen Hazelcorn and she's written extensively on the subject of universities. She'll be telling us what they do and don't tell us about Irish universities. That's after this short break. You're welcome back to News Talks. Taking Stock. Now, according to QS, our universities here in Ireland have made impressive strides in their ability to produce skilled and work-ready graduates. But do those uh, rankings mean much to parents and students who are actually trying to make choices over this summer? Well, joining me now to dig a bit deeper into the rankings themselves is Ellen Hazelcorn, who's Managing Partner of BH Associates. And Ellen has published several books on university rankings. Ellen, you're very welcome. Thank you. Now, just before we get into what they say about Irish universities at the moment, can you just explain to us a little bit about how the rankings are actually taken? Like what is involved in a university kind of compiling these rankings and how are they evaluated?
0: OK, so the first thing is, that they're not compiled by universities, they're compiled by ranking companies. Um, they're commercial companies. So that's the first thing It's a product.
1: So um, so the universities, though, what do they have to do? What do they have to give uh, in to the companies?
0: Well, on some of the issues, they're asked to provide some data. But uh, other data is collected by the ranking companies. And I think that's the important aspect of
1: independent it. Independent of the universities. Well,
0: yes. Yes, they're independent. But it's also the fact that there's no international definitions around what's being collected. There's no criteria. There's no international data. So what's collected depends on each of the ranking companies and the methodology changes regularly. And we've just seen how that methodology changes.
1: And that's very interesting, Ellen, because when you hear the rankings in the newspapers and on the radio, you kind of think, oh, there's some big body up there evaluating them, putting the top 100 and putting the top 10 together.
0: Well, to an extent they are. I mean, they're collecting data. This started around 2003, these global rankings Ranking started in the U.S. much earlier, nineteen eighties, to be precise. But so, to an extent, they are. They're collecting a whole load of data. In some cases, QS is a good example. Is they effectively create some of their own data. So. The employer reputation survey, they have had a student survey in the Times and they also have an academic reputation. So in those cases, they they contact a whole wide range of people and they say, what do you think?
1: Mm.
0: And then when it comes to evaluating them, do you think they matter? Well, it's not, they're not measuring anything of any great significance. The real impact is, if you want to say, the macro trends they might show. So I could say something about that. But um, yes, people do take account of it. Basically, at your elite end, what I call your students who are free to choose, who can go and have the monies to either travel, particularly international students, or within um, large systems. Mm. So the U.S. large system, people will move around the U.K., Australia. But by and large, undergraduate students stay fairly close to home. Mm. But yeah, it, it 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 is
1: it a prestige thing then for the university? Oh, it's
0: huge. Well, not just for the universities; it's a prestige thing for for countries and for students. Um, um for students, yeah, students and parents, but it's also for countries. So you see, investors, you look at it, countries like to see. So particularly for a country like Ireland, which is hugely dependent on FDI, um, the idea that we are producing high levels of that are universities are good and that we're producing large levels of smart students it's talent which is what it's all about is an important issue.
1: Absolutely and that's always been one of the massive sales for Irish governments when we go out into Absolutely. the world looking for new industries yeah. and multinationals it's the top thing that they actually say is we, we have a well educated workforce yeah. isn't it? And
0: so then you back it up with you look at that and when students are looking the international student market it's, um, it's a big um, earner for countries. Um, yeah. The different issue of whether it should be, but it is a big earner. And international students, again, you're talking about a very small percentage. You're really talking maybe about less than 10% of the total student population is mobile.
1: Right, OK. Let's dig in now a little, Ellen, to the Irish universities and what has been revealed recently about those. Sure. What do they tell us?
0: Well, they tell us that the universities are doing quite well in this kind of QS ranking. And um, as uh, said in the article, not to rain on their parade, it also has to do with the fact that the QS methodology changed. Mm. Um, so it, it changed in regard to the kind of things that it's measuring. So effectively, the, what its measures are is that the employer reputational survey, um, which used to be um, – the 10% is now 15%.
1: And is so, that, does that reflect the fact that um, more people are looking at what they come out of universities as? So maybe students and parents who are in the decision making process is looking at, well, which do, which university is actually going to help my young Mary or Paddy get a job at the end of the day?
0: OK, I don't want to rain on the parade, but these these are private companies. So they're very canny as to what the big issues are. And the political climate is changing. And so there's a big – it's not just here, but it's internationally. So you see the big issues around sustainability, impact, issues around um, outcomes, things like this. These are now the big issues. Mm. Um, you see the issue um, – so you have the Secretary of State um, – um, Cardona in the US making a really quite strong attack on rankings. They are essentially an elite game, mm. that that issue around the top 100. So I'm sorry, so, I
1: stopped you. What, what else helped the Irish universities, I suppose? Well, that's
0: what, what has helped the Irish universities. So in a sense, the research component or issues around other aspects of it um, kind of dropped a bit. And so what we see is that universities who put all their eggs onto just building up their research um, in a narrow sense did less well, mm. whereas universities that have a wider spread have done well. But it, the big lesson is, is don't put your eggs on in rankings because mm. they change their methodologies. And this is really what is the factor here. If you you have to just to say okay. it's not likely that universities change year to year. They don't
1: okay if you're just tuning in you listen to news talks taking stock and I'm talking to Ellen Hazelcorn who's managing partner at BH associate and we're talking about university rankings in Ireland so Ellen just talk to us a little bit about the Irish situation now who went up and how much did they increase
0: okay so you've you've had an increase of by Trinity and UCD um, Galway they've all gone up in in certain categories of as to how well they have they have done and that's I mean, this is fantastic. I mean, Trinity is now in the top 100, and we're a place where they have um, basically should be and have wanted to be for quite a long time. And I think that that is a huge uh, praise for the universities. It's also a huge recognition on the quality of the system, Mm. that we've had so many institutions that have done well. And I think one of the big features of the Irish higher education system is that They are broadly all, they are all good. Mm. They are all top universities. And that's what really um, matters ultimately for the country as a whole.
1: You mentioned international students and student recruitment earlier on. How reliant are Irish universities on that part of their cohort?
0: Yeah, so they're beca- they're increasingly, um, to some extent, we have about 10-11% international students in the country. They bring in and they pay over the odds. This is non-EU international students, not EU students. And presumably
1: Brexit may have influenced that. It has it?
0: influenced it to an extent. It hasn't influenced it perhaps as much as other people because English is now a, a big feature in other countries, though there's also a backlash, for example, in the Netherlands. Um, but... Um, yeah, so it is a feature, but it, it's not going to take away from Oxford or Cambridge. Mm. People are not going to say, oh, there's Brexit, we're not going. That's just not going to happen. Mm. It's not going to happen to what's called that Russell group of universities. It's the mid-tier, mm. uh, low, quote, lower tier, to use those, mm. those words. So we're going up in the
1: rankings. It might have something to do with the way the research is evaluated, but what, what it hasn't really, I, I suppose stopped is the question of funding of universities in Ireland i mean they have long been saying that they're not resourced enough by government um to kind of catch up with the um the 2008 2009 sort of withdrawal of funding from them do you see anything changing there as a result of this or is the landscape in relation to government funding changing
0: well, there's a, there's more money around, in the, and there's money for specific targeted initiatives. Mm. I guess the big issue is really to what extent it has to do with the core funding. Mm. So lots of big initiatives, another initiative being announced this morning um, by the minister with respect to the, t- to the Technological Universities and the Research Fund. So there's a lot of those kinds of things, but it is the core budget that is the key issue. Yeah and and there's
1: been a lot of change in the landscape as well you mentioned the technological universities yeah. there how are they
0: faring in this so they are emerging i think that's what you could you could say is that it will i mean again you have to look at the what these rankings are they've they they may take 1500 they may survey thousands mm. and at the end of the day they kind of produce 1500 mm. now there's over 20,000 universities in the world. Mm. So we're talking about institutions that are in the top 5% worldwide, top 3%. That's a big deal. So, And they're, and they're doing well. Yeah. Will they be in the top 100? No. Yeah. So do,
1: so do you think um, the rankings, I'm sorry to come back to this again. Sure. And I started off with this question. I'm trying to understand whether you feel the rankings are actually evaluating things properly. And are they worthy? No. 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 Okay. All right. The
0: the basic answer is no. It's it's a game. And I think increasingly... um, So it's a bit like I go to Hong Kong. I've just randomly picked it. And I want to know where should I go and eat. So I look up on Google. Where's the best restaurants? And I think, all right, this is a good choice. So in the same way, okay, they carry much more weight. That is actually because the issues around universities, university research, um, talent, all these, what the university's performance says about national competitiveness is a big deal. Mm. So they're so there a much
1: bigger macro exercise than trying to attract, you know, somebody who's down in Mullingar trying to figure out what college they're going to. It's a kind of marketing international ploy. Yeah,
0: but it's not going to affect our students in Mullingar. They know the national scene. Mm. But if that person in Mullingar decides that, oh, for my master's or my doctorate, though they probably already have sorted that out through their undergraduate learnings. I might go X.
1: Mm. But just one final question yeah. for Ellen. on Having a minister, a dedicated minister for higher education, do you think that matters? Is that going to make a big difference in terms of funding when it comes to budget 2024?
0: Well, I think it makes a big difference overall. You're bringing the further and higher education systems together. I think that's vital. And you're bringing research into the into focus as well. And I think bringing them all together is, is very important.
1: Well, that was Ellen Hazelcorn, Managing Partner at BH Associates. Ellen, thank you so much for coming in to us today and sharing those fascinating insights. You're welcome. You're listening to Taking Stock on Talk Coming up, we preview the three upcoming by-elections in the UK with the Financial Times political editor, George Parker. Stay tuned for that. welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock I'm Mandy Johnston now finally today let's turn as we very often do to our closest neighbours over in the UK their Prime Minister Rishi Sunak will be heading off on his holidays as many politicians are at the moment before he does he's going to face a big test of the political climate in the UK and here to tell us what lies ahead for him is George Parker who's the political editor of the Financial Times George welcome back to News Talk gotcha. Now, there's a lot of um, problems facing Rishi Sunak at the moment. They've got um, by-elections coming up. They're stuck stubbornly at around an 8% inflation rate. Interest re- rates are touching 6.5%. So, in that complex matrix um, and and examining what lies ahead for him... Can you just set out the by-elections in particular? What is due to happen next week? Because I think there's three happening next week, but there may maybe others that are looming uh, and lie ahead for him. Take us through what's actually happening and what the polls and the mood music yeah. in the Tory Party well, okay. is. Well,
2: okay. The, well, the, the backdrop for Boris Johnson for these three by-elections, which are taking taking place on Thursday the twentieth of July, so that's next Thursday, is about as bad a backdrop as you could possibly imagine. And you know, you could add on to the list of high inflation, the highest tax rate we've had since the Second World War, the longest health waiting list, 7.5 million people now waiting for medical treatment in the UK. Um, and to add on top of that, the fact that the Conservatives, but uh, Rishi Sunak's Conservative Party are now typically 20 points behind the opposition Labour Party in the opinion polls. Rishi Sunak's popularity with his own party has slipped into negative territory. So, on virtually every indicator, the lights are flashing red for Rishi Sunak. And into this extremely difficult political situation, he's now got to face these three by-elections caused by the resignations of Tory MPs in varying degrees of um, unfortunate circumstances. Boris Johnson stepped down, after he lied to MPs, his seat in Uxbridge is up for grabs. he got a seat in North Yorkshire called Selby, which has been vacated by a Tory MP called Nigel Adams who thought he was going to get a seat in the House of Lords offered to him by Boris Johnson, which didn't materialise. So he's resigned in a fit of pique. And the third by-elections in the West Country, Somerton and Froom, caused by the resignation of a Tory MP who was caught up in a cocaine and sex scandal. So all in all, not a particularly
1: promising outlet for the Prime Minister. No it's not an election cycle that you'd like to head into but the collection of by-elections that are are lying ahead and the cause of them does kind of typify you know that Boris Johnson era. You've got Boris himself the petulant guy who's walking off the pitch because he didn't get his peerage and then the scandal. Um, But You know, is there with the? (laughs) This is going to sound ridiculous, but with expectations so low for Rishi Sunak, is there is there any light at the end of the tunnel for him? Is there anything that could come good through these by-elections for him? For example, could he win any of them, and then this the spotlight be on Labour?
2: Well, look, I mean, there's always expectation management before by-elections, but I think on this occasion, the things that Conservative people are saying to me privately reflect what people are picking up on the ground and certainly what the bookmakers are offering in terms of odds. I think it's almost certain the Conservatives are going to lose all three of the by-elections, potentially very, very badly. Um, I was speaking to one person, a senior Tory last night, who said we're going to lose horribly. Mm. Um, and even, you know, so, yeah, aiming off a bit for expectation management, you know, the, the odds the bookmakers are offering, 25 to 1 on the Liberal Democrats, for example, winning in Somerton and Froom. Just reflect what people are thinking on the ground. That people are not necessarily angry with Rishi Sunak, but just absolutely fed up and are tuning out. And that's a real problem. So I think you'll have a lot of Tory supporters staying at home when they on voting day next Thursday. Others switching to the Labour Party, which hopes to win Uxbridge and Selby, or the Liberal Democrats down the South West and Somerset. So yeah, it's looking bad. Mm. Um, the only good news for Rishi Sunak is that the elections take place on the last day of term for the House of Commons that's so the day that MPs will be heading off for their summer holidays. Many Tory MPs with a great sense of relief that it's over for the time being. But it's uh, it's looking pretty bad.
1: Mm. And you had an extensive article um, on the issue of the mood within the uh, Tory party. And I, I have to say, you know, it, it was to, to say it was a fatalistic attitude would be an understatement. Um, but you know, you and I both know in politics it's all about the momentum. So losing these by-elections, behind in the polls, rising interest rates, uh, food banks, you know, he could end up, or could he end up in a kind of death, political death spiral over the summer? Or what could he do to try and curtail or stop the rot that seems to be just prevalent throughout the Conservatives?
2: Well, I think it can go two ways here, can't it? And you, you're absolutely right that momentum is the key thing. So we're a year out, probably, or a bit more from the next British general election. Most people think it will take place in the autumn of next year. So the, the one, one way it could go, this is what um, is described by Tory strategists, uh, strategists as the narrow path to victory, is that momentum works in his favour, that essentially things have got so bad, just losing biopsies or the state of our hospitals or... Inflation, that actually things start to turn around a bit, and you know you start to get the interest rates start inflation starts to come down, um maybe he stops to get so many boats coming across the English Channel, and he can somehow present a sense that the country's heading in the right direction, and therefore it's risky to change track now. That's the very optimistic scenario. Mm. The more plausible scenario I would suggest at this point is where momentum works in the opposite direction, where. Bad opinion polls lead to further divisions in the Conservative Party, more and more people having the kind of conversations I was reporting on last week with journalists about how they're going off and looking for other jobs because they're bound to lose. Discipline breaks down, and then you end up in a sort of doom loop where things get worse and worse, and you get this sense of a government that's sort of putrefying in office, which is basically what happened with John Major's Tory government back in the 1990s, and all the sle- allegations of sleaze were around. So those are the two ways it could go. And british Sina will be desperately hoping that MPs will come back in a slightly different frame of mind after they've had a good summer break.
1: Mm. Well, even if they, they do have a good rest over the summer and come back in some way rejuvenated and can ignore all the opinion polls and the by-election results. And we look at the voters and what they are facing into. One of the challenges that the Tory party now have is that They've got a really, really wide base, a really wide cohort to try and speak to. So they've got that traditional Tory vote, looking for tax cuts and all of that, and then you've got the Red Wall voters. So, like, really, is there any way that Rishi Sunak can appeal to that broad base going forward? It's a
2: really tough choice, it's a tough position for him to be in, mm. and it's one of the problems. If you like, he's been by Boris Johnson. It's a problem lots of prime ministers will like to have, but. Boris Johnson won the 2019 election with an 80-seat majority because he basically broadened a conservative coalition in a way that many people thought was impossible. He sort of reached out to the kind of people that Boris Trump was reaching in America, to, uh, white working class people in particular. And he did that through two things. One was Brexit, um, he promised to get Brexit done. A lot of those so-called red wall seats in the north were very heavily Brexit-focused. And the second thing he was helped with was by, by the fact that Labour at the time was led by very left-wing London uh, MP Jeremy Corbyn, who alienated a lot of traditional Labour voters in the north. Now, the Brexit fact is gone. That fact, all the opinion polls suggest the public now think Brexit was a bit of a mistake, if not a very big mistake. So the Tories don't talk about that anymore. And Jeremy Corbyn's gone. Mm. And suddenly you're left with this big sort of problem, which is, as you mentioned, you've got voters in the south, the, the traditional Tory voters, wealthy people in leafy shire seats, who don't want lots of houses built? Who want lower taxes? And you've got you've got the uh, the voters in the red wall who would like to see more houses built, and they'd like to see more public spending. Um, and it's a difficult, it's a very difficult coalition to to hold together in an election. You know, there are some people who say that to hold the red wall seats, you've got to start double down on the culture war stuff and talk more about law and order and migration and trans rights and so on. The problem with that is the more you talk about that, the more you alienate your liberal in the South who don't like all this tough talk on immigration and so forth. So that's an additional complication if he actually needed any more ahead of the next election.
1: Yeah, but what you've just explained there could actually be evidence for the conflict within the Conservative Party because one is always going to counteract the other. um, And you may end up losing all in that conflict uh, when you're actually just trying to go back and revert to your traditional base. But you mentioned there Boris Johnson's um, Brexit and, uh, you know, that that, that's a failed project now. Um, Rishi Sunak putting forward his five uh, point plan to try and redeem himself and one of the things I wanted to ask you there is in, in trying to redeem himself and what he's offering the electorate in that five point plan is it, who is it who is he actually trying to appeal to? Are these five things just take us through them very quickly are they things that the public actually will respond to in your view?
2: Well the five promises he made at the start of the year are deemed by, well they weren't just plucked out of the air, these were deemed by the opinion pollsters to be the things the public really cared about. So three of them were to do with the economy: get the economy growing, um, reduce debt, and halve the rate of inflation. And the other one, one of the other ones, was about cutting hospital waiting lists. And the other one was stopping the boats, stopping the number people coming across the English Channel in small boats, regular migration. So those are the five promises. And the idea was that by the end of the year, he showed progress on all these or deliver on all these promises, and then. This would underline the fact that, unlike Boris Johnson, he's a serious politician, which has been that he just wants to fix people's problems and run the economy in a sensible way and try and restore order. So the idea was you you meet these five promises, which at the time seems to be fairly modest, to be brutally honest, mm. fairly easily achievable. And then at the beginning of the election year, he'd come up with five new promises to say, you, we've done that lot, now look at these next ones that all take us into the election. The problem is, first of all, that there's evidence that these tests may not be as easily achievable as he thought, even though they were supposed to be quite easy to meet. But the second thing which we often miss out on here is these are five tests that he set himself. These <laughs> five tests he's asked the public to judge him on. They aren't necessarily the same tests that the public actually will judge him mm, on. Mm. So, for example, when he says, I'm going to cut hospital waiting lists, well, that's fine. If you, but if you're only cutting the hospital waiting list from 7.5 million to 7.4 million, if one of the 7.4 million waiting to see a doctor or a hospital have a hospital operation, mm. that doesn't look so good. So even if he meets those tests, it's not by any means a, a guarantee of any sort of political success.
1: Mm. Um And, you know, he, he was the great antidote uh, to uh, Boris Johnson, a kind of technocrat, if you like. Is there anything in your view that he's done right? Is there any way in which he has impressed you since he, co- he has come in and taken over as leader?
2: Well, the... the the most important thing about Rishi Sunak is he's not making things worse, um, which is, you know, fairly low bar to any politician. But generally, I think that's that's fair to say. I mean, we, we've become so accustomed in this country to people making things even worse, mm. whether it's through Brexit or in the case of Liz Truss, crushing the economy after 49 days. But having a politician who's not, you know, <laughs> making a bad situation even worse is, a, is seen as a bit of a, a positive. And, mm. you know, to be fair to Rishi Sunak, he's a serious politician, He's done some sensible things in terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol, for example, trying to fix that. Um, Some of his policies on trying to reduce regular migration, controversial, but then probably the kind of things you would would want to do. He's just announced today um, that he's going to make make some fairly generous pay offers to public sector workers to try to end the wave of strikes. So he's quite good at sort of going around fixing problems.
3: Mm.
2: Um, So that's, you know, I think that is impressive in its own way. The the difficulty for him is that the problems are so big, and um, the public have almost tuned out from the Conservatives now. That I think this is a frustration for us. seen he privately tells people, "I don't, don't get the credit for yeah. the stuff I'm doing." That's, yeah, yeah, that's, the that's that's tough reality of politics, I must say.
1: But a, you know, he has identified and and solved some of the problems that he inherited on on the Northern Ireland Protocol. He has created some semblance of um, a relationship with the US. President Biden uh, there again this week and on the world stage he's as you say presentable he's not doing a terrible job but domestically and I'm going to try and put my rose tinted coloured glasses on here for a second and just try and say well look if he's steadied the ship somewhat and if these by-elections happen he loses them gets over the summer can try and get an autumn conference where he speaks to his own party base at least rallies the troops maybe a positive budget in the in the spring of next year and that inflation figure starts coming down is there is there any sort of way you see a, that that narrow path working for him in 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 the future well who Good else party. is there who else is there if, if it isn't him
2: well, I mean, there's no question of Richard Siena being replaced before the election. I mean, he will be the leader of the Tory party going to the next election, barring some very unforeseen circumstances. I think the thing is, we all have to be humble as political journalists in this country. We've, we've basically called all the, most of the last few elections completely wrong. Um, and, you know, the, the British electorate is incredibly volatile. The fact you've got a whole chunk of people who've never voted Tory in their life voting for the Tories under Boris Johnson last time was itself an extremely... Interesting phenomenon, I and mean, those people could easily switch back. Or, we don't know. I mean, the, the, the electorates are volatile. It's certainly the case that Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, is a competent uh, and technocratic sort of person, but he certainly has none of the electoral appeal, for example, that Tony Blair did ahead of the landslide in 1997. Mm. Um, and in fact, the further north you go, the less the popular Keir Starmer is. He seems a bit of a London lawyer and not particularly charismatic. And sometimes you watch Prime Minister's Question Time, which is a, you know, a strange sort of microcosm, but sometimes you can see glimpses of how Rishi Sunak might be able to rough Keir Starmer up a bit in their general election campaign. So I think, you know, we, we have to accept the possibility that things could go right for Rishi Sunak. Inflation could start to come down quite sharply in the autumn and a lot of people expect that to happen. And he'd be able to start saying, look, things are moving in the right direction. But at the moment, just from speaking to Tory MPs and just yeah I mean, the snapshot of the mood in the party in the way that i say as you said right at the start there incredibly fatalistic and in a general sense of party heading for defeat
1: well as we know in politics things can always get worse and that's what keeps us both in a job but for now <laughs> we'll have to leave it there that's george parker political editor of the financial times george thank you very much for your time pleasure well that's it for this episode of taking stock and while we broadcast at this time on sunday mornings we're always available as a podcast first from friday mornings on the news talk app My thanks as always to today's guests and to producer of Taking Stock, John Fardy with thanks also to Simon Keane and Stephen Daunt on research with Hugo Da Silva on sound. If you want to get in contact with us about any of today's items just email us on takingstock at newstalk.com Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with all of the Sunday newspapers on the record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.